G'day again, everyone. I'll pray before we get this wonderful chapter. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would remind us this morning and every time you're open, we open your word that uh, it is you speaking to us. Help us to be sitting on the edge of our seats. Help us to be listening intently, but most of all, give us soft hearts ready to respond in faith and repentance. In Jesus' name, amen. One of my favourite movies is The Magnificent Seven. I don't know if people have seen The Magnificent Seven. A picture will come up on the screen. I'm not talking the recent Denzel Washington one. I'm talking the original Yul Brynner and Steve McQueen one from uh, 1960. Uh, anyway, if you haven't seen it, it's a Western. Every Saturday night, if we have a movie night at our house and the kids go, what movie should we watch? So I say, how about we watch The Magnificent Seven? And they say, no, we're not going to watch The Magnificent Seven. But it's a Western. Uh, it's about a poor little Mexican village that's been raided by bandits every year and they decide they've had enough so they go and they try and find some gunfighters who come for the money but in the end they find themselves as they uh, become a part of this village as they defend, defend this village uh, and they're willing to die to defend this town I won't tell you which of the seven die and which survive I'll leave that for you to watch the movie it's actually based on a Japanese movie from a few years earlier called The Seven Samurai uh, if you want to watch the original but anyway I think the real original Magnificent Seven is actually here in the book of Acts. Uh, the seven people we've met in this little section we're in, remember the, the first five chapters of the book of Acts are really about the apostles. It really focuses especially on Peter uh, in Jerusalem. Uh, but then when you got to chapter six, flick back to chapter six, just to remind yourself, make sure you're there now. Uh, the apostles were getting distracted from their role of preaching and praying. All this, the, the logistics of caring for all these people who are becoming Christians was getting too much. So they appoint these seven helpers to sort of run the logistics of the operation, if you like. There was a great line last week where David said in his sermon, whether he said, these seven were the spreadsheet guys. It just sort of captured it for me. They were the spreadsheet guys, the accountants. They were managing the finances. But, and this is really important as we appoint people to be somewhat the spreadsheet guys at our AGM next week. These seven were picked, why? Because they were men of godliness because they were full of the spirit and wisdom. That's what it tells us in chapter six. And that meant that even though they had a job of managing the finances, even though they had a job of sorting out who could be fed and all these things, they couldn't help but get out there and preach the gospel. It was just part of who they were. And to go with my movie theme, it's like they were helped to pick the village, help the village run the bookkeeping, but then when the fight started, they couldn't help but, but pick up guns and join in. And so last week, remember chapter 7, we met the great hero of the faith. Never forget Stephen, the, the first Christian martyr. He is a true hero. And he stood up in Jerusalem. He preached that Jesus is Lord uh, and they stoned him to death. But it's this wonderful moment at the end of his story where he didn't care because he looked up and he saw Jesus welcoming him home into heaven. Uh, and you imagine then the Jewish leadership would have thought, surely this will kill off this silly little Jesus movement. Surely now that we've, we've shown them what we do to people who, who stand up to us, who, who preach this message, surely now that will be the end of it. Uh, but the reality is you can't stop the gospel. They even up the ante. We read in our first three verses today that Saul, who we know of as Paul, his Greek name when he became a Christian, but Saul at this point, what did he do? He went from house to house terrorizing the Christians, dragging them, putting them in prison. Surely they thought, surely this will, will kill off this Jesus movement. 
but you cannot stop the unstoppable gospel of God. Uh, another one of our students preaching in another service last week used the image of trying to put out a fire by belting it with a stick. And what happens when you try and put out the fire by belting it with a stick? The embers just sort of explode out of the fire and, and, and set off other fires. And that's exactly what happens here because what this persecution did is it scattered the Christians like embers setting off bushfires all over the place. The, the, the apostles stayed there to face the music in Jerusalem and to, to keep leading the charge there, but everyone else fled, led by the remaining six of what I've called the Magnificent Seven. But they didn't flee to hide. Wherever they went, they went preaching the gospel to people in new places. And so today we hear the story of Philip, uh, great, another hero, great name, isn't it? But uh, he spells it wrong. He's got one L missing. But anyway, uh, let's look at Philip's story. So it's in two parts. I've called both the unstoppable gospel and the first is even to Samaria. Okay, so Philip flees from Jerusalem and he goes actually to the most unlikely place. He goes to the Samaritans. He goes to Samaria. Now, why is that so unlikely? Because Jews and Samaritans hated each other. That's why it's so unlikely, in that way that only estranged close family members can hate each other, uh, because the Samaritans were sort of half Jewish. They were the remnant, do you remember one and two kings last year, two kings? They were the remnant of that northern kingdom that had been destroyed, uh, and other people had come in, and it was sort of a mixed religion. And so they didn't accept anything the Jews accepted. They only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament. And they even built their own temple, not in Jerusalem, but up in Samaria. Uh, that's why when Jesus wants to shock and offend his Jewish listeners, he tells the story of the good Samaritan, because that was an oxymoron. There are no good Samaritans. They are the enemy. They're, a, they're the people we hate, was how the Jews thought. So why would Philip go there, of all places? Well, Jesus had modelled it. He'd gone there. Do you remember the Samaritan woman at the well who Jesus had shared the gospel with and then how the people had come out of the town and many had listened to Jesus? Uh, more than that, Mike alluded to this at the start of the sermon, before Jesus ascended into heaven, Jesus had said, you will be my witnesses starting in Jerusalem, then in all Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. Jesus had said, this is where I want you to go. These people need to hear the gospel. And so Philip had got the message. Look at verse 5. Come with me. Chapter 8 now. Verse 5. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah to them. And the wonderful thing is the people listened. Look at verse 6. It says they paid attention with one mind. They were amazed by the miracles Philip did, but they especially listened to the message about Jesus. And I think that is just the greatest joy, isn't it? Isn't that the greatest joy, it's the greatest joy in my life, when you see people hearing about Jesus and listening. Hearing and listening, that's what they did. But the Samaritans already had a miracle worker who they were sort of following. They had a guy called Simon the Sorcerer. Sorry if your name's Simon today, you don't get quite to be the hero like Philip. But anyway, uh, look at verse 9. It says, a man named Simon had previously practiced sorcery in that city and astounded the Samaritan people while claiming to be somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least of them to the greatest. And they said, this man is called the great power of God. They were attentive to him because he had astounded them with his sorceries for a long time. Seems this guy really did do magic in some sense. It was probably demonic based in the occult. Uh, and we need to realise at this point, and always remember, spiritual powers are real. 
Uh, this, this world is not all there is. There are angels, there are demons. And in some way, Simon was tapping into that. Uh, and it seems he had set himself up as some sort of Messiah, or at least a representative of God. But here, you see the power of the gospel. Look at verse 12. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Then even Simon himself believed. Isn't this just the greatest story? It's always a great story to hear of people becoming Christians. That, that's always wonderful. That was what was so encouraging at the big day out last week. It's what makes us sort of tear up as Christians when we hear people moving from darkness to light, coming to know Jesus. That's uh, what we long for. But here, this is just wonderful. These are the outcasts. And yet here they are welcoming the gospel. But there's something more to see in this incident. I've called my next heading, Is This Real? So look from verses 14 to 17. See, when the apostles heard what had happened, they thought we better go check this out. You know, Samaritans becoming Christians, this is crazy talk. So they send the two big hitters, they send Peter and John to have a look. But then it gets strange. Look from verse 15. After they went down there, they prayed for them so the Samaritans might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet come down on any of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, why is that so strange? Well, it's because if you know your Bible, you know Christians receive the Holy Spirit when they become Christians. There isn't such a thing as a Christian who does not have the Holy Spirit. In fact, you only put your faith in Christ because the Holy Spirit is at work in you, bringing you to faith. So this seems to suggest that it's a two-stage process. You come to faith, and then later on, someone comes and lays their hands on you, and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's actually, this is the passage where much of Pentecostal and charismatic Christians uh, get this idea of a second blessing, this idea of, that you need a, a second instalment, if you like, of the Holy Spirit, which is often tied to, to speaking in tongues or some other strange phenomenon. And this passage seems to support that idea. The problem is the rest of Scripture doesn't support that. And more than that, besides not being biblical, that idea causes division because you end up with this idea of two levels of Christian, the, the unspiritual and the spiritual. Uh, if you were a Christian in the 80s or 90s, uh, can I tell you, you would have had Christian friends who told you you weren't spiritual. Happened to me. I remember going and visiting a French church and they said, do you speak in tongues? And I said, no. And they said, oh, so you haven't received the spirit. So no, the Bible is, is really, really clear. Every Christian has the Holy Spirit. So, so what's going on here? Why this anomaly in this passage? I think this is about God's validation on what was happening. Uh, it's God's validation on a massive moment in God's plan for the world. See, this is the first time the gospel has gone beyond the Jews. That's how massive this, this is. It's not to Gentiles, it's sort of to half Jews, Samaritans, but the first Christians were gonna struggle with this. The Christians sitting back there in Jerusalem and in other, other places, even though Jesus had talked about it over and over and over again, they were gonna to struggle to believe that a Samaritan could be welcomed into the people of God, that a Samaritan could have the Holy Spirit. It was so ingrained into them. And so I think this is about validating 
that these people truly are Christians. It's interesting, something similar happens with the first full-on Gentile that, that becomes a Christian, Cornelius, in Acts 10, but we'll get there in a couple of weeks. And so here, I think God wants to show this conversion is real. These Samaritans have found salvation. And more than that, God wants to show that the other Christians need to set aside their old animosities and welcome these people into the family. And what clearer way to show that than to have Peter and John go there and do a second Pentecost. Just like there was the first Pentecost to say the Spirit has come on the Jews as they've turned and put their faith in Jesus. This is like a second Pentecost to say these guys have got it too. It's saying these guys are getting everything you've got. I think that's what's happening here. These people really had come to know Jesus and that's what Peter and John were there to show them. But sadly, it wasn't real for every individual there. So come with my next heading is, you can't buy God's spirit. This is from verse 18. See, Simon the old sorcerer was watching everything going on and he thought, I want some of that. That looks pretty good. Imagine if I could put my hands on people and, and the Holy Spirit came on them. Uh, I'd like to do that. And so he tries to buy the spirit of God. Look from verse 18. It says, when Simon saw that the Holy Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, give me this power too, so that anyone I lay hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. And Peter is just appalled that anyone would think like that. He rebukes him. He, he tells him he is wicked. Uh, he tells him that he is poisoned by sin. It's a bit of a conundrum. We don't actually know whether Simon was converted or not. Uh, the reality is sometimes people do profess to believe, uh, but in time that profession is found not to be real. You see that all through the book of Acts. You, you see it in, in the rest of the New Testament. Maybe that was Simon. Maybe he professed faith, but this shows the reality of an unconverted heart. Uh, or maybe he had become a Christian, but this was still one of those sins that was still at work in him and, and he still needed to deal with. And we don't actually know, it doesn't tell us whether he truly repented and actually turned to Christ in the end. At the end, he, he asked them to pray for him that the bad stuff won't happen to him. But that's not a prayer of repentance, is it? So we, we don't know whether, whether he ever actually repented and turned to Christ. That's just one of those questions. But he is responsible for a word in the English language that you might thank me for the next time you're playing Scrabble. Uh, it's the word simony. Simony is named after him and it means to try to buy religious influence. Uh, as sad as it is, people can think that you can buy God's favour. And on the other side of the coin, think like I think Simon was intending here, that you can peddle the gospel for profit. You only have to turn on your TV any time before seven in the morning and you will see some, not everyone, but some on there who are doing just that. God judges people like that very, very harshly. A worker deserves his wages. Our church rightly ensures that me and other ministers are provided for. Uh, you can see that the AGM next week. But the pastor or minister who, who thinks you can make yourself rich off the sheep uh, or the person who tries to buy influence uh, over other Christians, they should fear God's judgment like Simon the sorcerer. 
It's not just televangelists who need to hear this, by the way. It's every Christian. See, if the story of Barnabas as opposed to Ananias and Sapphira a few weeks ago, if that challenged us to be generous and sacrificial in our giving, uh, this reminds us to be, to be very careful of giving to think you get something in return. Uh, see, the opposite danger is to think our giving should buy us special treatment. You know, I give 10 times as much as them. The minister should give me more of his time. Or I give to get my name put on a plaque on a wall. Some people need to be challenged to be more generous, but sometimes generous people need to be challenged to make sure we're giving for the right reason. Uh, Sometimes we need to be challenged to give, not to buy God's favour, but simply because we love to be generous. But I would hate it if we finished Philip's story on the sin of Simon, because the main point here is a positive one. God's unstoppable gospel has gone where no one thought it would ever go, even to the Samaritans. And the next adventure of Philip brings that point home to us once again. So this is installment two. I've called it the unstoppable gospel, even for eunuchs. There's not a word to use very often either. So here's Philip. He's doing this great work in Samaria when an angel appears to him and says, go and hang out in the desert. God has a habit of doing that to his prophets and, and so forth. He says, go and hang out on the road between Jerusalem and Gaza. So he goes and he sits there and he waits and along comes a chariot. And the man in the chariot is an Ethiopian eunuch who is like the right-hand man of an Ethiopian queen. Now this seems really strange to us, but uh, in the ancient world, slaves were often made eunuchs, especially if they were working in the royal court. I don't think I need to explain why that was, working for the queen, they were made eunuchs. But they could also rise up, even as slaves, they could rise up and become successful people. They could become prominent uh, positions. So this man was effectively the treasurer of Ethiopia. That's who he was. Now you might think he was a Gentile, and he certainly would have been uh, someone probably from like what we would call Sudan today. Uh, But Uh, So some people say this is the first Gentile to be converted, but Acts seems to save that for Cornelius in a couple of chapters, because I think this man was actually a bit like a Samaritan. He was on the fringe of the Old Testament people of God. Look at the end of verse 28 there. Uh, It says he had come to worship in Jerusalem. So clearly he'd come to know the God of the Jews. He'd come to know Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament. He'd effectively become a Jew, what we call a proselyte or a a convert, but he could never truly be a part of it because under God's Old Testament law, a eunuch could not go into the temple. See, he went to Jerusalem to worship, but only on on the fringe uh, of being a part of the people of God. Uh, And so you can see why I say it was like a Samaritan. That's, it was a similar sort of situation. But anyway, here he is. He's in his chariot and he's there reading the prophet Isaiah. Hopefully someone else was driving or, or maybe it was parked on the side of the road. Uh, I don't know. But Philip runs up to him and he says, look at verse 30. He says, do you understand what you're reading? And the man says, how can I? I haven't got a guide or a teacher. And so Philip sits down with him. And they read that wonderful passage from Isaiah 53 together. They read about one who was led like a sheep to the slaughter. One who had justice denied to him. They read about one whose life was taken from the earth. And the eunuch says, tell me, who was Isaiah talking about? I know Isaiah wrote this 800 years ago. Who who is it that he was talking about? 
And this is one of my favourite verses. Look at verse 35. So Philip proceeded to tell him the good news about Jesus, beginning from that scripture. Isn't this just beautiful? Philip sits there and he says, Isaiah, writing 800 years ago, was talking about Jesus. So let me tell you about Jesus. It was Jesus who was led like a slam to the slaughter. And then Philip would have then taken him back a couple of verses to Isaiah 53 verse 5. It'll come up on the screen, hopefully, where it says, But he was pierced because of our transgressions, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. And Philip would have explained how Jesus was paying the price through his death for our sin, that his punishment brought us peace. And Philip would have explained how Jesus rose again. And now we know that he is coming back to judge the living and the dead. And he would have explained how every person needs to repent and put their trust in Jesus. He would have talked about forgiveness. He would have talked about the hope of eternal life, that we will all be raised with Christ. And after he explained all of that, the man decides to become a Christian. He puts his faith in Jesus. And so they spot a little patch of water, on the, perhaps on the side of the road. Who knows? There wasn't a lot of water where they were. Uh, you notice no second experience here, no need for Peter's validation. This man was now a disciple of Jesus. This man was a part of the people of God. This man who could never be included before, who was always on the outer. Well, there are no boundaries stopping him now, now that he knows Jesus. And then he gets baptised and then the Spirit takes Philip away to some other places that need to hear about Jesus. We don't get to hear about those adventures. But I love the end of the story. Look at verse 39. It says, but he, the man, went on his way rejoicing. And why wouldn't you? He had started the day excluded from ever being a full member of the people of God. In the middle of the day, he'd been reading his Bible but was all confused. But now... He had found eternal life. Now he had come to know Jesus. What else is there to do other than rejoice when you've come to know Jesus? Well, as we've gone through Stephen's story last week and now Philip's story this morning, uh, I hope there's been all sorts of encouragements and lessons for you. Uh, But I'm just going to draw out three main lessons from what I've called the story of the Magnificent Seven. The first is this. Just remember that the gospel is unstoppable. Just remember the gospel is unstoppable. So many times throughout church history, people have tried to kill off the church. But every time the gospel just keeps going out and people keep getting saved. And in fact, often when there is heightened persecution, like at this time in the book of Acts, the church actually grows. I just say, don't get disheartened that our society seems to be becoming more antagonistic to the gospel. Because in my experience, as the opinion shapers are getting more antagonistic to the gospel, people on the street are getting more open to the gospel. That's what I'm seeing. Because the gospel is unstoppable. God has his people to save. And the gospel will go out and nothing can stop it. You see, like Philip, we know the God of the universe. God is in control. His gospel is unstoppable. Second thing. Remember that the gospel is for all people. How wonderful that the first steps of the gospel outside Jerusalem were to share it with people who'd been excluded up until now. The Samaritans and a eunuch from Africa. And that's just yet another reminder that everyone needs to know about Jesus. 
And that will be a reminder from every chapter of the book of Acts. And a reminder that it's our job to welcome anyone who comes to know Jesus into our church. Not just the people like me or the people like you, but everyone. But the biggest lesson uh, I want us to take from today is to see Philip as a model for us of evangelism. See, like Stephen, Philip is a hero of the faith. And I start off by saying, these guys really are the magnificent seven. And Stephen and Philip, this will mean nothing to the people who have not seen the movie, but Stephen and Philip are Yul Brynner and Steve McQueen, or, or Denzel Washington and Chris Pratt, if you've seen the more recent one. Uh, so one thing we are meant to take from these stories is their example. And they're an example of courage. They're an example of zeal. Telling people about Jesus was what mattered to them, even though they weren't the apostles. See, they may have been appointed to be the spreadsheet guys, but when they got the chance, they knew what was important was speaking about Jesus. But what I also love about these two stories of Philip is the way they model two different types of evangelism for us. See, in Samaria, it seems, Philip went into town and set up the equivalent of the microphone and the speaker. He sort of did the bloke on George Street thing. You know what I'm talking about? Where, where people stand there and, and, and preach the gospel. And that was the right thing to do. We need preachers. We need people who can go and preach to a crowd. People who can stand up and explain the gospel. Whether it's to 30 people at the life course on a Tuesday night or to 150,000 people with Billy Graham, you know, at, the, at Randwick Race Course. We need that boldness. We need people to go and preach the good news but then the second story is different, isn't it? It was one-on-one. -on -one. This, this Ethiopian man was, was reading the scriptures and he had questions and Philip was there to say, do you understand? Can I help you understand? And I love this second story because it's a great model that I think anyone can follow. It's a model for every Christian. One of the best ways to help people is to invite them to just read the Bible and then say, do you understand? And if they have questions, talk to you about it. And any Christian can do that. So many people in our church have become Christians because a friend just invited them to read the Bible. But very few become Christians just by reading the Bible. There are those great stories of the person who, who's walking down the street and a page of the Bible hits them in the chest and they read it and, and they become a Christian because God can work that way. But more often he doesn't. Most people are like the eunuch. And they read the scriptures and they say, this is intriguing. Can someone help me understand? And every Christian should jump at that opportunity, shouldn't we? And if you don't think you could then work at getting to know your Bible better so that you can. I think every Christian should get to know one of the Gospels really well. Just get to know Mark or Matthew or John or, or Luke uh, so you can suggest that for people to read. Uh, I know I'm like a broken record, but do the intro to the Bible course later in the year so that if someone's reading Isaiah 53, you can say, let me show you Jesus. And if you still worry you couldn't answer people's questions, firstly... Remember, it's actually a wonderful testimony to people to say, I don't know the answer, but can I go and take you to someone who might be able to help us? Would you like to come to the life course? Would you like to come to a Bible study with me? And other people might be able to help us together. But also remember, you only need to know a little bit more than someone to be able to help them. I remember when Sam was about six, his team's soccer coach had to step aside and they asked me to coach. I know nothing about soccer. Truth be told, I hate soccer. I grew up playing 
proper football, but you, you know. Um, <laughs> but then I thought, surely I know more than a bunch of six-year-olds, though. I know you've got to kick it down that end and get it in the goal. You, you know, I didn't need to be an expert to help six-year-olds learn to kick a soccer ball. You do not need to be a scholar. You do not need to be an expert to sit down with someone and help them understand God's word. You just need to have read your Bible yourself. You don't need to be a scholar and an expert to point people to Jesus. Any one of us can be a Philip and help a person come to know Jesus. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for these wonderful stories of Stephen and Philip. And we pray that we might be encouraged and challenged by their zeal. But more than that, we pray we might look to Philip as our example. We pray that we would be open to talking to people, to opening the scriptures with them and inviting them to talk to us, to come to meet Jesus. And we pray that we might all have that courage that Philip has. In Jesus' name, amen.